Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. Uh, today, I want to talk a little bit about just the latest on the Ukraine proxy war. And also, I was thinking today, since it is the Thanksgiving weekend, that whether you celebrate or not, it's always a good time to uh, try to um, give thanks and to uh, you know just be grateful for whatever it is in your life that makes you grateful. So I thought today, if anybody's interested in sharing what they're grateful for, then uh, I, I encourage that and I'll do the same. But first, let's talk about Ukraine, where the situation for Ukrainian civilians looks to be increasingly dire. Uh, the New York Times recently reported this. It says this, quote, Moscow has opened what amounts to a separate war, missile and drone strikes aimed at destroying Ukraine's infrastructure degrading the quality of life for millions of civilians in an effort to demoralize them. And the latest figures show that millions of Ukrainians are without power. Um, Ukrainian officials estimate that Russia has damaged or destroyed half of Ukraine's energy infrastructure. A senior official with the World Health Organization uh, recently warned that uh, this winter, he says, will be life-threatening for millions of Ukrainians. Now, Russia, of course, says that it only targets infrastructure that serves a military purpose. And it also says that in Kiev, at least, Ukrainian, Ukrainian air defenses have misfired and basically hit uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, buildings uh, and infrastructure of its own. But no matter what, you know, sort of excuses or legal rationale Russia can come up with, I think this it's what it's, it, what it's doing is clear. It's collective punishment. It's a war crime against Ukrainian civilians. There's there's no denying that. Um, what I think is important, though, for a Western audience is to think about is that, you know, Russia is not the only side that could stop this, even though it's obviously responsible for what it's doing. Uh, but the fact that Russia's opened what the Times calls a separate war on infrastructure, the fact that they've, they've opened it now, only now, you know, um, nearly a year into the war, says something. It says that had diplomacy been pursued, all of this could have been avoided. But there was a choice, and we have to acknowledge that this is a choice made in NATO states, especially Washington, to prolong this war. Um, I've often quoted this article from the New York Times in September, which said that Western officials were baffled at that point um, because Russia, quote, had avoided escalating the war and made only limited attempts to destroy critical infrastructure, uh, which then led... U.S. officials to, quote, fear that the most dangerous moments are yet to come. So this was a choice in Washington to, instead of embracing, fully embracing diplomacy, to let this war go on and then basically invite the kind of you know, reckless destruction that Russia is uh, raining down now. And that's not to absolve Russia of what it's doing, but it is to point out that uh, there have been ways to avoid this. If you think, I mean, it I guess this is critical. If you think there was something to discuss with Russia, if you don't think there's anything to discuss with Russia and that they're just, it's just a matter of they're an invader and the war can only end when they're driven out. Well, fair enough. Okay. So then this war has to go on until uh, Russia surrenders. But if you feel as if Russia has laid out any kind of reasonable path for, or at least discussable path for, for diplomacy, then I think Part of the fault here does belong with those who refuse to accept diplomacy. And I, and to me, that is, uh, Washington. Um, 
you know, and we don't have to go through the long history again, but basically on the two major issues, uh, NATO expansion and NATO military infrastructure and NATO states, uh, and the Minsk two, and the Minsk two accords, which is the framework for resolving the war on the Donbass. I do think Russia has had what, if not reasonable positions, at least positions that are worth negotiating. And the U.S. position has been to basically not negotiate on any of these core issues. And as long as that remains, destruction like this will just go on. And to me, it's just an example of continued sacrifice of uh, the Ukrainian population. Um, and even some Ukrainian officials admit that the Russian war aim is to compel diplomacy. So, for example, uh, an Air Force spokesperson named Yuri Innat, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, Colonel Yuri Innat, I'm probably saying that wrong, so I apologize. Um, he told the New York Times this, he said, it is clear they want to impose certain conditions, they want to make us negotiate. And I think that's what it comes down to, is either you think there's something worth negotiating here, or you don't. And I'm of the opinion that there is. And if you think there's no point in negotiating, then I just think that's a recipe for disaster. But if anybody feels differently, we can we can debate that today. Um, and uh, one other uh, point I wanted to mention today is, you know, I've been reading more about you know the immediate background to this war. And forgive me if I've already discussed this previously on this show. I can't remember if I have, so I'm sorry if you've already heard this from me. But I've learned recently about a guy named Sergei Savoko, who is a, uh, a longtime friend of Zelensky, of President Zelensky, and also his former comedy producer, was very involved in Zelensky's comedy show before Zelensky became president. And I learned recently that, that this guy, um, Sergei Savoko, he was, he's a native of the Donbass. That's the region that's been fighting Ukraine since 2014. And, uh, under Zelensky, he was appointed to a pretty senior role on the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine. And he took up a mandate of trying to make peace, of reconciliation, of speaking to people in the Donbass, and basically promoting uh, reconciliation and dialogue between, you know, warring Ukrainian factions. And uh, there's an incident that happened in March 2020 that I think says a lot about where Ukraine has gone and where basically the voices inside Ukraine who have advocated diplomacy uh, have been silenced. And so in March 2020, Savoko unveils what he calls the National Platform for Reconciliation and Unity. And he does it in the city of Mariupol. But he only gets 20 minutes into his presentation before it gets disrupted. And that's when dozens of members of the National Corps, and that's basically a political movement that's tied to the Azov Battalion. Uh, it's also been designated by the State Department as a, quote, nationalist hate group. Uh, these members come into the room, they rush the stage, they call Savoko a traitor, and they assault him. And that forces Zelensky into a choice. Is he going to basically side with his friend and with their peace initiative for dialogue, or is he going to side with the people who attacked his friend? And he sides with the people who attacked his friend. And Savoko was fired from his job, and his, uh, his unity platform effort failed with that. And that, to me, I see as a turning point because after a year of talking about making peace and talking about how he's willing to make sacrifices for peace, Zelensky's rhetoric changed. And I, I've been studying it closely because I'm working on a book about, about all this. And Zelensky's rhetoric started to change after that. And he basically sided with the people who had attacked his friend and their peace mandate. 
I don't think that's because that's what Zelensky actually wants, but I think it's because he was just intimidated and he saw how difficult it was for him to make compromises and to negotiate peace. And by the way, I should say, you know, you know, um, the Minsk Accords I talk about a lot, and that was what could have ended the war. You know, I know that those were not very favorable to Ukraine. They were negotiated at a time when Ukraine was losing. And uh, Zelensky was saying that we need to renegotiate Minsk and change it to new terms. I think that's actually a fair position to have. Uh, you know, you can say we signed this under duress. We need to negotiate this to more favorable terms because basically it called for granting autonomy to the Donbass and their people who felt as if it granted too much autonomy. All right, fair enough. But the, the problem with Zelensky was he refused to speak to the rebel leaders in the Donbass and basically saw them all as tools of Russia, which the more I learned is just not the case. And so if you're going to call for new terms, you have to be willing to speak to the other side that you want to have new terms with. But he didn't. And that continued right up until the invasion. So my point in telling this story is simply that there are voices inside of Ukraine, including Zelensky's close confidant, who were willing to make compromises and willing to make peace, but they were sabotaged at every single turn by the far right. And uh, I don't think the far right could have gotten away with it if not for Washington. And let me actually quote Savoko again. So after he gets fired, he says this. He says this. Uh, he, first of all, he criticizes Zelensky and he says this. It's easy to enter office taking advantage of the issues of peace building and then sell the country and hide your head in the sand under the pressure of an active minority. That's what he's saying about Zelensky after, after he got fired from his position. And then he also says, quote, to confront the aggressive minority, it is necessary to socially awaken the majority, make it more active. We need to demonstrate that the peace process can go on if those who are genuinely motivated start supporting such initiatives. And that to me is a very tragic statement because he was basically trying to call upon his countrymen to wake up and basically help him uh, stand up for peace, basically stand up for Zelensky's own election mandate to make peace. But I don't think without Washington's support, they could have done that because Washington is such crucial leverage over Ukraine. So that if there's no powerful political force willing to stand up for peace, then it's just not going to happen. And meanwhile, the U.S. policy adopted a strategy of confrontation. And let me quote a very influential person on that. So this is Kurt Volker. He is the former uh, U.S. envoy to Ukraine. You might remember him from the whole Trump impeachment saga over Ukraine, right? He's, he was among those that testify. And as uh, as Biden and Putin were meeting in June 2021, and Putin was talking a lot about the Minsk Accords. We need to get back to the Minsk Accords uh, and we need a commitment for that to be implemented. And he was complaining that Ukraine was not meeting its end of the bargain. So Volker says this, that the best possible outcome, quote, is one of a lack of agreements altogether. And as he put it, and this is a credo that I think has really been that, has been U.S. policy since. This is what Volker said, quote, success is confrontation, unquote. That's a direct quote. Success is confrontation. So success is not agreements with Russia. It's not ending the war in the Donbass. Success in the uh, mind of Kurt Volker, who was a former U.S. envoy to Ukraine, also a lobbyist for Raytheon. He works for a firm that did lobbying for Raytheon. Quote, success is confrontation. And that to me has been the credo uh, from before the war and since. And that's why diplomatic efforts to end the war have been sabotaged. And we're now we're getting the result of that success, which is Ukraine's civilians paying the price. And by the way, 
it's not just Ukraine, of course, that's paying the price of all this, all this, although they're the primary victims, but it's also other parts of Europe. And interest, interestingly, there was a uh, report in Politico this week about European officials complaining about the U.S. profiting from the war. Um, Politico says this, quote, top European officials are furious with Joe Biden's administration and now accuse the Americans of making a fortune from the war while EU countries suffer. That's a quote from Politico. And of course, I mean, we've all seen that for a very long time, that this was not just about sacrificing Ukraine to uh, weaken Russia, but also in the process, basically making European countries even more dependent on the U.S. Uh, because when you cut off Russian energy, then they have to get it from somewhere. So now they're getting it from uh, liquefied natural gas, where U.S. Uh, producers are selling it for four times the price. <laughs> and they're making a killing. And now, of course, some of that is just it costs a little more money to ship over the sea to Ukraine. So it's not all just naked profiteering. But the point is, when you force Europe into cutting off Russian ga- gas, that's the situation you're putting every- everyone in. That's why it's I-, I don't think in anyone's interest to be doing this. But anyway, so it's interesting to see more and more dissent coming from Europe. And that's a reflection of the fact that we're heading into winter and reality is sinking in. And... uh you know, I think this discontent will only grow, certainly inside of uh, of Europe. So that's the situation as I see it with the proxy war, uh, and we can get more into it today with the callers. And um, so let me talk about what I'm thankful for, what I'm grateful for. I am grateful, for, well, for many things, but I'm, I'm grateful for independent thinking. And I think, you know, as depressing as this era has been, uh, for example, living through a war that really should not have happened, it's so senseless. And so catastrophic. I do think, though, events like this do awaken independent thinking because people realize that they're being misled. They realize that wars like this don't have to happen. They realize that, you know, especially in the NATO world, that their tax dollars are going to waste and that they are paying the price of policies that, that, you know, we have no control over. So I do think independent thinking is growing uh, an embrace of voices, you know, outside the uh, establishment mainstream. And uh, I see that everywhere. And, you know, it, it comes from people on all sides of the spectrum, the left and the right. And uh, I just appreciate whoever is trying to engage in independent thought, even if it leads to conclusions I don't share. I just think the practice of thinking uh, critically and not accepting what our uh, enlightened opinion makers and leaders try to sell us on, I think is very, very healthy. So I am grateful for that. All right. And with that, I'll open it up to calls. So, uh, Zen, you are first. Oh, hi, uh, Aaron. Um, great to be here. Um, so yeah, um, I'm thankful for, uh, my fiance who, um, is, she's from Nicaragua. She's been a U.S. citizen for a while. And, um, this year, uh, she had, has had two nephews come up from Nicaragua um, through the border. Um, and I'm thankful for them, too. They're nice boys. Um, so um, I'm kind of like with the whole Ukraine war. You know, I got up to speed with that really fast, like right when it started and um, found like Scott Horton and you. And I learned the history about Ukraine and you know, I've joined the anti-war movement and, 
you know, I'm really just kind of sick of it. And I'm very disgusted with the U.S. government involvement. Um, so my question for you, because uh, I don't want to just keep droning on here, is um, I wanted to know what you thought about FTX, the, the whole FTX uh, thing and this SBF. And yes, I guess this is also tied to Ukraine. So I'll leave it there. Yes. So um, the thing with FTX, it was it was used to fundraise money for Ukraine. And the question has been, has there been money laundering going on, which is a, you know, a fair question to raise. Not only were you talking about FTX, given the corruption there, but also Ukraine, because Ukraine, even before the war, was one of the most corrupt countries in Europe, maybe even the world. But I just don't know. I haven't looked into it um, in detail. So I, uh, you know, it could have just been a legit fundraiser um, buying humanitarian uh, supplies for Ukraine or not. It's totally fair to speculate, though, given given the people well, I involved. I just I don't have know. one more thing to add yeah. about that is that yeah. uh, this SBF character was also like I've heard that he was the second biggest yes. donor to the Democrat Party behind George Soros. Yes, yes. Who also Soros also who has you know a, a a big hand in Ukraine. Yes, he was. He was a huge Democratic Party donor, and that's why I'll be shocked if there's any kind of accountability for what he did, given uh, you know how much money he gave the Democrats. I just when I, I think he's someone who has bought himself a lot of influence, and it's very difficult to uh, uh, to to you know for anybody who actually wanted to see wanted to see him held to account. When you buy that kind of influence, it's very hard to overcome. So, um, yeah. Um, but so, yeah, so exactly. But given that, so given that he's a huge Democratic Party donor, given his company is, he, you know, stole, it looks like, mm-hmm. you know, basically his customers' money to invest in a separate uh, firm he had or, 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 or to invest through that separate firm he had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and given Ukraine's involvement, it's totally fair to speculate. I just don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, that's fair, because I know that's not your area of expertise. But, uh, and also, shout out to Max for uh, his Nicaragua uh, coverage. So thanks a lot. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bert, and just a reminder for anyone who's just joining, if, you know, we're t- you know since it's Thanksgiving weekend, if anyone wants to share what they're thankful for, please, please feel free. Okay, Bert, go ahead. Hey, Aaron, I'm thankful that I have rent for another month. That's a great thing. I'm thankful for that, too. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, always a challenge. Um, yes. As far as Ukraine goes, I want to ask you, I know there was something about a, in Italy where there was, um, oh, God, I can't think off the top of my head. But my concern domestically here with this is that we're sending all these weapons over there. We already know that Azov has trained right-wing militias. Yes. Now we have all this this weaponry that I fear is going to find its way back into the U.S. into the hands of our own, you know, white supremacist right wing factions. Yep. And totally uh, fair. Have you heard anything about that here? Like I know, like I say, there was something that happened in Italy. I didn't read the full story. I know there was um, arrests. Yeah, arrests made, easy for me to say. Um, 
And but have you heard anything coming back here into the United States as far as uh, yeah, that sort of training um, and weapons? In terms of in terms of weapons, no, no. And you know that's, I mean, that kind of smuggling I think is probably pretty challenging because basically to smuggle those kind of weapons, you have to take it by boat. Um, but uh, there have been arrests here of people of basically like white supremacists who trained with Azov and were involved in some kind of plot. This was a few years ago. This was actually back, I think, in 2019, uh, where Azov people trained, people trained with Azov or other far-right groups in Ukraine were arrested here for, you know, accused of being involved in some kind of plot. But in terms of weapons, no. I, I think the biggest concern with weapons is Europe. It's so, I mean, the borders there are so porous and the oversight of these weapons is nothing. So... I think the danger really is there. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, we, and we know that far right people have gone from around the world to go fight in Ukraine. That's, that's, that's well documented too. So it's totally dangerous. And there's very little tracking of the weaponry. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, for taking my uh, call and have a great rest of your uh, show. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. I mean, have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you. Uh, okay. Andrew. Hello, Aaron. How are you? Hi there. Hi there. So I was wondering, uh, I guess I'll say I'm thankful for health and the family and for myself. Good health is always something uh, not to take for granted. Yes. And on that topic, I was wondering if you heard of Putin meeting with uh, mothers of Russian combatants of the special military operation or war, whatever they're calling it now. I did see he met with some mothers yes 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 yeah did you see uh, that he made the comment that he was uh regretful that he didn't act earlier essentially that he said that they should have recognized the independence of the donbass earlier and that the the essentially the lesson they're learning is that they allowed this to build up and it's much worse than it needs to be because they allowed it to build up and so yeah uh, yeah i mean i didn't see that but i i've heard that that criticism of him before for, from inside Russia. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, this just kind of makes me think, uh, you know, I was wondering before, what are the lessons that our adversaries, the U S adversaries are going to take away from this? And it seems pretty obvious that they're saying it out loud to themselves that they should have, <laughs> they should have aggressed earlier, which is like the entire theory of this is that this, this intervening of our military is supposedly to neutralize and contain and uh, keep Russia docile. And look mm-hmm. what it's done. Not only have they become aggressive actively there, they've decided that they should have done it earlier. Right. And uh, what that goes to say about Taiwan and China, I don't know. I, I was wondering what you thought about that. Or is China totally separate and not concerned with uh, Russia's lessons because it's a apples to oranges? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know enough about China to say, but um, I definitely, and you know, I have a Ukrainian friend who says to me that, in his opinion, if Putin had intervened back in 2014, like in in uh, in the Donbass and in Mariupol, then he would have had a lot more support inside of Ukraine than he does now, and uh, and in Russia as well, there there would have been support for it too. Although it looks like in Russia he still does have support, if if we can believe the polls. But I, I have heard that before. And obviously, you know, that's that's an example where the conventional U.S. understanding of Russia is is totally 
out of sync with what the reality is. We're actually the criticism from from you know a significant um, constituency inside the Russian establishment was that Putin was too soft when it comes to Ukraine because of all the provocations and the the 2014 coup and then the attacks on uh, ethnic Russians in the Donbass. People wanted to intervene a lot earlier, and we we have no idea about that because we're not allowed to right. look at Russia any kind of you know. I, I hate to use the word too, nuance because it's so overused, but any kind of nuance. Way, yeah, exactly. You can't even take them as a genuine article, anything yeah. Russian says. So, but yeah, yeah, I think that's just maybe something, a talking point to bring up when they these people say NATO is a defensive alliance to pacify Russia or to make Europe safer. Look at the results. So what are the other options? Crank it up and go to full war with Russia? I don't think we're going to do that. So what does that tell you about NATO? You know Exactly, yeah. I mean, look, the reason, I mean, it's really interesting. Why, why is Mark Milley, of all people, coming out strongest for diplomacy? Like, why? Is it because he really cares about Ukraine? I mean, maybe. But also, maybe he's also seeing where this is going, where, you know, yes. Ukraine's getting clobbered, no matter what we're told here about how, you know, Russia's on the, Russia's on, you know, is is being pushed out. I mean, they still have taken 20% of the country about that. Um, and he's seeing where this is going, where basically if this keeps going like this, then his forces are going to be asked to go fight Russia because that's the only way for Ukraine to win. Right. And he doesn't want that. <laughs> and they're already being depleted in our arming of Ukraine. We're running out of 155 millimeter artillery shells. And it's like, okay, how is that boding well for what future aggression against Russia? It doesn't seem... I think you're exactly right. He knows the writing's on the wall, but he's, yes. he's not in a political position. So what is he going to do, right? Yeah, no, I mean, but, but it's, yeah, it, um, it just shows the people who are driven by ideology are the ones in charge. Right. And uh, even someone as yeah. powerful, <laughs> yeah. even someone as powerful as the leader of the armed forces is, you know, there's only, yeah, I mean, he, he, he has his place and um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to imagine this going on through next year, but that's that looks like where it's going. You know, if Ukraine doesn't want to go, it looks like in Ukraine there's just no appetite for negotiations. Like Zelensky's been pretty much pushed into, you know, just being full on. We have to drive all the Russian invaders out, and no compromise right. until then. So it just looks like this will go on for a while. Something will have to change militarily drastically before they're willing to. And who knows how long that will take a year or, you know, that's who knows. Yeah. But well, I mean, time and I, I'll thank take you. the rest of the answer off here just because I don't want to hog the time. So, thank OK. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Russia is also I mean, we haven't talked with. You know, some 300,000 new troops very soon. And so will that make a difference? I, If I'm betting, I, I think it will. OK, Adrian. Hello. Hi there. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm grateful for a lot of things. I, I won't enumerate them. Instead of that, I'll just uh, say thanks to you for all of the outstanding work that you do. Um, I think uh, you, along with a few other people, are sort of upholding the honor of the journalistic profession. Um, so thanks for that. Um, can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Oh, okay, and, good. Uh, and, and thank you. Thanks yeah. For oh yeah, my, my my pleasure. No, and it's it's very sincerely meant. Um, just a a, a a kind of a quick reflection. Um, it seems to me that the most sort of plausible explanation for why uh, the Americans, that is, we are engaged in the proxy war, is a kind of desire to preserve 
unipolar dominance. But then, as I think about it, I wonder whether that makes sense even on its turn, because how big of a threat was Russia ever? How big of a threat did it actually need to be? Um, it seems to me that <clears throat> we've, uh, for a good while now, have, have been working to create a bogeyman, um, which then uh, b- becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. But, but it just seems that there's a kind of deep incoherence and, and, and as you said earlier, sort of senselessness there. Or, or, what, what am I missing? Yeah, no, I, you're not missing anything. They're, they're, they're not a, they're only a threat to complete dominance of the world. Like they have a little bit of power. They have nuclear weapons. They showed in Syria, for example, that they can like, that they can defeat a U.S. proxy war, although, you know, right. uh, at huge cost to everybody. And so that's, that's the threat. They're not actually, um, going to invade NATO countries or any of that. I mean, like, look at, look at the struggles they've had in Ukraine. Right. Uh, so, but, um, but that's the thing is, as you, as you say, like you need, they're not a threat, but also you need to, to justify being a global hegemon. You, you need a threat. So you, you right. have to, you have to make them a threat. <laughs> and, uh, like you have to basically try to simultaneously weaken them and bleed them as much as possible while also still turning them into a threat. So it's a, it's a tough line to, to walk, but that's the U S policy basically. Like that's why this war has gone on for so long is busy. You know, it's not as if like, uh, like the fact that Mark Milley is calling for negotiations, I think Simi says that there's a recognition that Ukraine is not going to be able to right. score much more of any battlefield success. But the longer you make it go on, the more you bleed the adversary. And uh, you can also, and also get to invoke them as a threat. That's why you can spend more yeah. money in the military and all that. So it's just, it works beautifully. Um, and, you know, they've totally marginalized any voices calling for diplomacy. Uh, at least inside Ukraine. I mean, that's just done. Like, yeah, you know, it, it's over. And yeah. So, it just, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Aaron. Go, no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. No, this seems so deeply irrational. I mean, I, I guess that's maybe that's that's obvious. But because um, it seems to me that even if you wanted to stay on top, that there are various ways of doing that. And one of them is um, to sort of create friendly relations more or less based on common interests of course um i mean so so it's just it's sort of like it just it seems it seems to sort of uh this kind of extreme machiavellianism ends up just being stupid it ends up boomering back on itself seems to me i i completely agree I completely agree. It, oh, it's not, that's something else to be thankful for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, sure. It, yeah, it's it's not um, it's it's not rational as we understand rationality. It, it's rational if your goal is to just basically constantly have chaos and have a situation where your hegemony is constantly reinforced. In that sense, it's rational. Like yeah. it follows a certain logic. But in terms of like the harmony of the world, it's just it's it's insane. It's yeah. absolutely insane. And, and it's bad for the heartland of the empire too. I mean, it's it's um, there's a there's such a danger of overextension uh, of you know I, I mean so many other dangers that that are just really bad for the heartland of the empire itself. So it just seems anyway. I, I won't take any more of your time, but I'm 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 uh, 
uh, th thank you for uh, responding to my comment. I really appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, look, in terms of being bad for the, the, the heartland of the empire. Yeah. I mean, just look at the issue of homelessness, which is a exactly. really big problem now uh, exactly. in the U S and all the money that's been gone to weapons makers for Ukraine. Mm. Um, imagine if a fraction of that went to homelessness. It's exactly. just, you know, exactly. but, yeah. Okay. Thanks for the call. All right. Take it easy. Thank you so much. You too. Gator. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? Heather. Uh, I'd say I'll start off with what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for family and a place to live. That's got to be uh, pretty much high on the list, I reckon. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, with regards to Ukraine, I mean, I kind of keep coming back to PNAC rebuilding America's defenses, the, the general standing of the hegemonistic policy, which is essentially to remain the unipower step on anyone who can um, even remotely challenge that, including Russia and China. And, and you can achieve that by constantly creating bits of chaos throughout the world where people end up fighting each other before they fight you, or you go in and stamp on small people just to keep everybody else in line. I mean, I think very simply, yeah, that's kind of how I would characterize US dominance. And, and in some respects, Ukraine is no different to that. But what disappoints me deeply is that um, none of this is a surprise. You can find and work all of this out from available information. Um, you know, Lindsey Graham is in there in 2017, isn't he, on video saying, we like this strategy. It's time for war to fight. We're going to go back and, to our Congress and basically press for you to be able to start fighting. You know, I mean what happens after that you know we 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 see the escalation of of war i mean the reality is and this is this is something there's a few people in here that call into you for example from time to time who literally started off denying the nazi angle yet they were constantly fed bbc telegraph atlantic council all of these other sources 2014 onwards saying oh my god there's nazis and eventually they've had to these guys have had to go yeah okay well, what about Wagner? Aren't they Nazis? Doesn't the, don't the Russians have some Nazis, right? As if they kind of can ameliorate this thing. And what the reality is, is that I know this is going to sound cynical, but in less than a hundred years, the continent of Europe and the US has shifted from fighting um, an ideology on a world war basis to then integrating them after that war through a paperclip to then reinstating them and using them as a legitimate proxy against a nation that it actually allied with in order to end the second world war and to the point uh, uh, to the point that nazis are on and present and growing inside the european continent which the eu was partially created to prevent does this not sort of tell you or us how basically dumb large amounts of people are because they cannot recognize this for themselves and they are slaves to faulty media that hides this from them until it's way too late that's i know that sounds cynical but that's kind of where i've got to at the moment with this stuff i don't think people are dumb i i, I think we have such a sophisticated propaganda system it, it's it, honestly you couldn't design a better propaganda system than the one we have in the in the West because we ha do have the appearance of freedom and we actually have freedoms. Like everyone has the right to free speech, you know, with some exceptions, obviously, like 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 Julian Assange and, and others. But, you know, we do have on paper a lot of freedom. 
Um, and, it, you know, and we have two political parties, which then gives the appearance of some kind of uh, political diversity, even though they on foreign policy, they share the exact same priorities, basically. And the way the media works, it's just so beautifully set up where everyone's incentivized to toe the party line. And if you dissent from that, you get, you know, banned or censored or you get um, called mean, like, or you get called a, a, a Kremlin puppet and also just never invited on. So people, you know, average people who have, you know, busy lives, you know, family obligations, work obligations, just trying to earn a living. They, they don't have the time to do all these research projects to find the truth. And they don't know about, about alternative sources of information. And so I don't um, fault people, you know on mass for just not knowing what they're not being told because the, you know, the, the propaganda system, system is so effective. It just, it works so great. And look, the fact that so many journalists, professional journalists whose job it is to like, you know, be critical thinkers and blah, blah, blah are such dupes. I mean, they're the ones who I think are, whose judgment needs to be questioned because they have access to actually the actual information, but they choose constantly to be stenographers. And when you have about, when you, when you have media professionals making that choice, it's, you can't really fault the people. Like, you can't fault their audiences for not for not knowing the truth. Yeah, I, I take that point. I, I think I think that that's a fair counterbalance to my uh, sort of uh, excessive cynicism. But what about the idea though that um, like I characterize this as a thing called digital Maoism, and it's basically instead of ideologically taking over a country with bullets, bombs from the top down, murdering everybody until you're left with a proletariat. Digitally, you can achieve that by monetarily, strategically, ideologically, and through other means, basically capture um, institutions um, strategically with enough people so that those institutions start to parrot your um, messaging. And inside journalism, I see that as, well, I'll give a quick example. 2000, what was it, maybe seven-ish when MI6 went in. And, and hoovered up all of the traces of the Julian Assange laptop. That was basically the point in which the, the, the Guardian became a final fully fledged mouth, state mouthpiece. And um, all of the people I know who are lefty type leaning people who read the Guardian do not seem to have spotted that transition. So when I come have a conversation with them about the world, they repeat Guardian talking points and going, well, yes. what about this? What about that? They don't know. You look at the Guardian and look for what it doesn't report. And that tells you that it's a state mouthpiece because it copies exactly the same agenda as all of the rest of them. Now, that that means that in, to, to me, I wonder if you're a journalist inside The Guardian, you couldn't even be an authentic journalist because if you tried to be, then you would be subject to cancel culture inside The Guardian anyway. So effectively, the whole thing is captured externally. And then that 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 predicates that culture inside itself. So it, and then it ultimately that comes back out to the consumer of news. I think that's the kind of, the. I agree with you that the, the, the propaganda system is sophisticated, but it's also utterly captured in, in many respects. Um, of course it is. Yes, of course it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, um, thanks for the call. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to play that clip you mentioned of Lindsey Graham because it's, it's just so unbelievable. Like if this were any other country, if this were Russia visiting some, if this were like Russian lawmakers visiting some other country, you would think, well, this is crazy. Like what are, what, what are Russian lawmakers doing giving battle orders to Ukrainian troops. But Lindsey Graham does this, some senator from South Carolina. And because we've just sort of internalized U.S. hegemony so much, it just this has seemed normal. So this is Lindsey Graham in December 2016, visiting with some Ukrainian soldiers. Your fight is our... 
2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Enough of a Russian aggression. It is time for them to pay a heavier price. So that's uh, Lindsey Graham from December 2016. And and when you hear clips like that, going back to what we were talking about before, you know, it's actually surprising that Russia didn't invade earlier. Because here you have Russia's top adversary, the U.S., sending its top lawmakers into Ukraine, Russia's neighbor, and saying, Russia has to pay a heavier price. Uh, 2017 will be the year of offense. I mean, that is aggressive behavior. And, you know, you just can't be surprised then when Russia reacts in a really harsh and brutal way. I mean, what what did they expect would happen? I think what they expected was that Russia would not respond like this. And that's why, I mean, yes, I do think, obviously, when you invade a country like Russia did, you have criminal responsibility. But I can't ignore the U.S. role here with displays like that. A you know, U.S. lawmaker saying that Russia has to pay a heavier price. And, you know, you, Ukrainian soldiers, you're going to make next year the year of offense, and we're going to arm you to do that. It's just so provocative and, and bellicose. And um, it's one of the reasons why I can't be on board with supporting that and why I'm blown away when progressive Democrats who, you know, challenge Lindsey Graham on everything he believes domestically are completely in lockstep with him on this important issue. Uh, Gator, thank you for the call. We'll take the next one now. Sam. Hey, Aaron. Can you hear there? me? Yes. Uh, well, it's great to talk to you. It's been a minute. I was actually hoping to see the Katie Helper's event uh, with Nico Pellet. But in, uh, I guess you could make it. Yes, I could not make it, but I heard it was great. Oh, it was fantastic. Um, yeah, I was. I was even telling her like I had. I had mentioned. Uh, I think a while back on Katie's show to to bring over um, a man by the name of uh, Rabbi Shapiro because he wrote a, an amazing book called The Empty Wagon. Okay. And what was great was he, he was actually there at the event. And I was just so bummed. I didn't know. I was like, I would have brought his book, but oh, no it way. was a great. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. It was great. His book is dense, though. It's it's over six hundred thousand words. Wow. I've been at it for a while. Yeah, yeah. He, he he. The book, if anyone's interested, it just details how Zionism hijacked uh, Judaism, and he yes. goes about detailing how you can just. Uh, I think it's mostly going through the Bible or the Old Testament itself and explaining how. You can actually go verse by verse, and it shows this has nothing to do with Zionism. But uh, anyway, uh, what I'm thankful for, uh, well, thanks for the coverage. I did appreciate the uh, the coverage you did on the UN report about Syria, uh, which is kind of heartbreaking because should Syria ever, do, uh, you know, finally free Idlib, they still have to deal with the sanctions, and we know how how long U.S. can hold sanctions. I mean, yes. Cuba's dealing with it sixty odd years, and they still can't get it removed. But uh, oh, and thanks for covering that story about uh, with John Stewart. I, I got nauseous. I tried watching that interview, and I was like, "I'm I'm done." I couldn't even get through you guys doing the um, you know, reaction. <laughs> it was it was just so heartbreaking. I mean, it's made so a career, career exposing the the lies of Iraq, and I'm and I'm just like, at the very least, Hillary's own email shows directly. She says we cannot. I think it was she was talking with France, saying you know we can't let Gaddafi have a gold currency. 
because yes. I'm, and yes. I'm like, it's, it's public knowledge. Like you can get it on the U S gov website through uh what is it called? Um, the freedom of information act. Yep. 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 And I'm like, yep. you could have brought that up. Or how about when she Condoleezza Rice says, Oh, it was never about freedom. It was about democracy. It was about security. I'm like, you could easily have played clips or just mentioned it was called Operation Freedom. What yes. are you talking about? But I I spoke to so many people I knew and they were just frothing at the mouth like, what did he do to his career? Like this guy was the symbol of of independent media in a sense. I mean, he kind of got the ball rolling. He did. He I, I agree. I mean, look, he's always had his, uh, I think, his uh, blind spots and he's never been. But like, well, see, like what I always thought was, all right, fine. At least, at least he's not parroting all this bullshit propaganda. If he doesn't, if he's not going to debunk it, at least he's not parroting it. But here he is bringing on two people to spew all these lies, especially with Condi. Like in in Hillary's case, she's talking about Syria and Libya and fine. All right. If you want to learn about that, it takes like, you know, like you have to do do a little bit of research and your producers have to do a little bit, a little bit of research, but okay. He did the Iraq war. And so when she says to him, we were worried that he had weapons of mass destruction to his face. He knows that's a lie. He knows that that so-called intelligence about weapons of mass destruction was concocted through fraud and even torture. That some people were tortured into saying that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. But this was a, a, a complete scam. He knows that. And he just sits there. And it's like, why would you do that to yourself? Like, if you're not going to, you know, have the... Um, Whatever you want to call it, if you don't want to, if you don't have the energy to be like a real, you know, uh, debunker, a real adversarial media voice, like calling out these warmongers, fine. Like I, you know, I whatever. I, everyone's got to make their own choice, but just be a willing accomplice to the, yeah. on the platform. These people and not challenge them, especially when you had cachet as being a dissenter. It just like it's so depressing because it just makes you think: Is anybody? capable of not being bought off and not being seduced by the allure of power? Like, is there anybody well, inside that, you know? I, I mean, somebody brought it up. He said, well, I mean, he can only ask so much. I'm sure they limited him. And I said, fine, but that's the case. If they were saying, oh, well, you can't ask these questions, then don't host them. That was my do it. And his questions, no, and, and, which, and the thing is, if you listen to him, he, I think he thinks he's asking really challenging questions. He was not. But they're such, they're so myopic. He's saying stuff like, Okay, yes, fine. I share all, like, I agree with all of the uh, lies you've just told. Uh, like, Qaddafi was a monster. He was going to commit mass murder, which was also a, a lie. He never was. The British government yeah. did a report. Exactly, exactly. That and, that's, and that's something where, again, if his producers had done their job, they could look up, oh, Hillary's co- going to come up. We're going to talk about foreign policy. So Libya will come up. All right, let's look at Libya. What did she say about Libya? She says that Gaddafi was going to commit a massacre in Benghazi, so we had to act. Oh, what actually happened? Well, look, the British government did their own study of this and, t- and the British government completely debunked it. And so did Amnesty International. So we should raise that, but none of that. Um, and so instead he does stuff like, well, okay, yes. Yeah, so I accept all of your uh, presumptions here, but can we sustain the cost? Like if we're going to be a global empire. Yeah, he accepted the empire notion. Yeah, That's exactly. when it was, I was like, yeah. hold on. You literally yeah. are, are accepting the, the fact that we have this, this right to go around to other countries and dictate what to do and where to do. And oh, and the worst I think was when he said, "Oh well, democratic countries uh, don't and don't invade their neighbors." Or whatever. oh my god, and I was yes. like, yeah. "We flew across the other side of the world and invaded countries." What are you? T- I I just yeah. I literally lost and our neighbors too. I mean, like the U.S. invaded Panama, 
it's you know it's invaded Haiti. I mean, it's so it's just even even this trying to make it about about neighbors so you can just try to like nail Putin. It's just so it's 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 also a false premise. Uh, that was so depressing. Um, also, and as you mentioned earlier, the interview I did with Elena Dohan, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on sanctions about Syria, was also so depressing. And it's just it's amazing the power the U.S. has over the world. Like with just a voice vote in Congress, not even a roll call, a voice vote. U.S. passed the Caesar Act, the most mm-hmm. like the harshest sanctions in the world, basically on Syria. They'll target basically any Syrian government sector and also anybody around the world who even thinks about doing business with Syria in any sector, humanitarian, energy, infrastructure, it doesn't matter. You will be sanctioned. And it gets passed with a voice vote. So all it is is a bunch of people saying yay or nay, and then all of a sudden, millions of more Syrians are sentenced basically to even more suffering and even death in some well, cases. I'll, I'll be real quick, but um, on top of that, well, I always point out to people and because they say, oh, well, Trump influenced it. I'm like, oh, 100% because it was actually created under the Obama administration. But even Obama looked at this thing and was like, this is too much, too brutal. Like, th- there's no way you can do this. And they never – correct me if I'm wrong, but I was positive it was passed under Trump's administration because uh, I remember the King of Jordan was, was trying to, to sway Trump against it because it was like, dude, that's going to even affect my economy. Yes, yes, and, yes, and, that's exactly right. I, yeah, and I was going to bring up just real quick. My dad actually just got back from Syria, mm. and uh, he actually – he was visiting uh, his mother, and uh, he had to go undergo uh, – he had to get surgery, and uh, I forgot what it was. We're not that close, but essentially he was explaining to me like that this, the, the, the amount of power that people don't get – because it used to be 24-hour electricity – um, he said all of it goes to the hospital. And he said at like midnight, it just becomes the generators until like three in the morning. That's that's a hospital. Can you imagine like ex- explain that to anyone else that, oh, yeah, by the way, we get to um, and we also get to steal their oil. We're blunt about it. We we're gonna, we, I forget. the. Can you remind me? What's the woman's name under Biden? Dana Struhl. Dana, Dana Struhl. We have their hydrocarbons and their wheat field. And anytime I'm talking to people, they just go, well, what about the Kurds? What about the – and I'm like, yes, you're broad you're, – A, they're not a monolith. B, that doesn't get to – we don't get to annex one-third of the country. Yes. And we're blunt. Yes. We're taking their oil. Yes. So I don't know. Yeah. It, it is, it's horrible. Let's hope, let's hope next year it's better. But I'm thankful for your reporting, and uh, good luck uh, till next week. Yeah, thank, uh, can I ask uh, where your father was? Like was he in Damascus? Yeah, he was actually in Damascus. Yeah. And, uh, my grandma lives in Damascus. Yes, and uh, they got lucky. They were actually because I used, you know, that's how I got followed Syria, uh, the whole conflict. Um, yeah. They they were just outside of the reach of uh, the army of Islam when they were used to uh, launch mortar rockets. Yes, uh, yes. What is, God, the neighboring town is. Um, they were either they, they were in they were definitely in Duma, obviously. Yes, uh, Duma but they also and, I think I think they also were were in Jobar. They're in uh, Jabar as well. I mean, now it's pretty much a Turkish enclave where Syrian children, or no, Jarablus, I'm thinking, where it's Syrian children are taught in Turkish. Yes. I mean, when people talk about, and I, I, I even asked my father, I said, hey, let me ask you a question. When you were a kid, did you ever grow up? Because he grew up as a kid with Hafez al-Assad as the leader. And I said, well, did you ever like do your version of Pledge of Allegiance like we have here where you're praising the, uh, Hafez al-Assad? He goes, no, it's it's just the, the nation's song. You don't praise any person. And I'm like, right. And I showed him how children in, in Jarablus praise Erdogan as like their morning school routine. That's crazy. I didn't know that. That's oh, yeah. crazy. Yeah. It, I mean, they literally say like, oh, Erdogan, you're so benevolent and all this stuff. I mean, it, it's bananas. 
But yeah, that's where we're at. I don't know. Hopefully things change out. But uh, it's just to say your, your point, why uh, the general's calling it. it could, I personally think it's because the winter is coming and people desperately need the energy. Right. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's my guess is Europe's probably pressuring them. Like, look, we're going to freeze if we don't get this thing ended. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. Well, fair enough. Th- Sam, thanks for the call. Appreciate it's it. So nice to okay. Russell. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Uh, what do you know about um, what do you mo- know about a lame duck package, war package for Ukraine? What are you hearing about it? Well, I know that Biden wants thirty-seven billion dollars, and I'm sure he'll get it. I'm sure he'll get it. Um, yeah, I'm sure he'll get it. I mean, is there I'm, any is there any Democratic opposition to it? No. No. No, zero. Not zero. Bernie. Not no, Bernie. Of course not. not. No, no, no. I mean, I like you saw what happened with the letter with from like thirty congressional progressives, and they asked Biden very nicely for some diplomacy, and they right. they didn't say we're going to cut off the military funding. They just said, hey, well, like while we're giving you all this money, can you maybe also negotiate with Russia? And even that had to be withdrawn after twenty four hours. And Bernie was among those who said he didn't agree with it. So yeah, no, they're um, so Democrats are totally on board. Why? Um, what do you make of the lack of um, anti-war movement in the United States? Like, why? Why yes. do you think it's not happening? I say, well, it's, it's probably more complicated than this, but but for brevity's sake, I'll say there's two main things. First is Obama. Obama killed it. Um, you know, there was so much. It was so much tied to animus toward Bush and the anti-war movement back. You know before Obama came in and then Obama ran against that whole legacy. And we could, you know, he could pretend to be sort of anti-war because he was never pro Iraq war. Although if you look at what he actually said about it, it was pretty tepid. And then Obama came in and everyone was so excited. And Obama was like this branded really well and, you know, hope and change and all that stuff. And what did he, you know, but then what did he do? He basically continued the the foreign policy of John McCain. It's pretty much the exact same thing Um, with the exception of the Iran nuclear deal and pardoning Chelsea Manning at the very end. But, and so, but Obama, because he got so many people then thinking that he was like progressive and was going to take on the establishment, he, I think, really demobilized the anti-war movement, who, which wasn't there anymore to hold them accountable. Hmm. Um, so there's that. Well, and, then there was, and then there was Russiagate. <laughs> Russiagate normalized this cold warrior chauvinism because that was presented as the answer to Trump, that Trump was a traitor to Russia, to, to the U.S., because he was putting with Russia. And so the answer to, to Trump was to be more bellicose toward Russia and also worship all these CIA and FBI people who were challenging Trump. Not, of course, because they didn't like his racism, but because they didn't think he was a good steward of the war machine. So um, I think Russiagate and Obama have really neutered the anti-war movement. And actually, you know what? I'll say this to Syria as well. Because Syria did divide people who consider themselves on the left and anybody who dissented from the line of the CIA was tainted as a, you know, as a dictator, apologist and all this stuff and a denier. And I think that those kind of splits make it more difficult to organize. Yeah. What it doesn't explain is like even small anti-war movements or even like during the Iraq war, there were democratic there were 
Democratic members of Congress who opposed it. Um, and they were in the minority, but they opposed it. And so it doesn't explain why nobody is standing up and saying anything in Congress. Well, yeah, but look at Congress, though. Look what happened to the most principled anti-war voice in Congress, Dennis Kucinich. He basically was chased out of town. The Democrats basically decided there's no room in our party for someone like this, who was like consistently principled against war. So he was basically chased out of Washington. And then Tulsi Gabbard came along and kind of, I, I mean, not, uh, not with the consistency that Kucinich did because he was just very principled and she was hawkish sometimes. So, but she also was like when she dissented, for example, on the Syria dirty war, she was, uh, and also when she stood up for Bernie, she was also chased out of town too. And, um, okay. How about somebody like Barbara Lee? Well, look, look like what happened. I mean, what happened to Barbara Lee? I don't know. She voted against the AUMF resolution on her own. Nobody else. But then what happened? What happened to her? Like what happened to her after the after the Obama years, after the Russiagate era? Now she's no different th- than the rest of them. And so, I mean, I'd love to know what happened to her, but she certainly was influenced by a change in culture in Washington. I think. Uh, finally, there's a new member of Congress from Pittsburgh. Her name is Summer Lee, uh-huh. and APAC tried to defeat her in the primary. And they came really close to defeating her in the general election. Uh, I think, you know, she was up by 25 points and they ran an incredible campaign against her and she only won by 700 votes. Yeah. Um, So do you see, other than, I think she's a possibility of leading a resurgent anti-war movement, but do you see any other newly elected members who might? No, I don't. I do not. And I'll be shocked if, if she does, too, because to be a Democrat these days, I don't think you can be consistently anti-war anymore. Uh, I just don't. I, I, I like you will be the the uh, the wrath of hell will come down on you if you're if you try to be like Dennis Kucinich um, or like Barbara Lee used to be. So I'll, I'll be shocked. Uh, I don't think. All right. Last, last thing. Who who are the who are the anti-war voices in the Republican Party? Well, I'm not going to say anti-war because some of them are, are, are anti-war in some things, but pro-war in others. Like, for example, maybe they're anti-war in Russia, but they're pro-war in China. But, um, you know, Thomas Massey, he seems to be the most consistent in voting against war funding measures and uh there was a there was a guy named Joe Kent who was running for Congress in Washington State, and he his story is really really interesting because he lost his wife in Syria, and he blames essentially the National Security State for sabotaging Trump's order to withdraw troops from Syria. Because after Trump ordered a withdrawal from Syria, his underlings refused to follow his orders, and because of that, Joe Kent's wife was kept in Syria, and she was killed in a suicide bombing by ISIS, and so he blames basically the like permanent war state for that. And he's, you know, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, he's very, he was very, um, I think actually, you know, actually, I don't know what his stance was when it comes to that. I knew, I, I know that on Syria, he wanted a full U S withdrawal. Uh, but then el- elsewhere though, on Iran and China, I bet he's pretty hawkish. So even those who take, you know, anti-war stances in some places are not usually consistent across the board. Oh, and by the way, he lost anyway, so it, it doesn't matter. But I'm just saying is these examples are, are pretty hard to find.
When's the when's the vote on the on the new military aid package to Ukraine coming up? Do you have a sense? I, I'm sure it will be in the next. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm sure we'll see it. I'm sure okay. we'll see it. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Okay, Kyle. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, how's it going, Aaron? Good. Good. Thanks. How are you? Good. Oh, we lost you. Uh, if you want to come back in, I'll let you back in. But for now, we'll take the next caller, whose name is Debate. All right. Hello, Debate. Debate, are you there? If you are, there's a mute button in the bottom left to unmute yourself. Okay. Uh, well, looks like debate doesn't have, might not be on the call or might not have access to the mute button. And if no one else will call in, then we'll have to leave it there uh, because uh, I don't have enough material to, to, to keep, uh, <laughs> to keep this going by myself. I, 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 I need your participation. So we will leave it there. And uh, thank you for everybody who tuned in today and everyone who, who called in. I appreciate you spending some time with me. Oh, we got another one. Let's actually take this caller. Mouse. There you go. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Um, Hi Mouse here. I'm a resident of Australia near Melbourne. Okay. Uh, first time calling in. Um, but I have been listening to some of your... Um, Coleman's earlier and uh, some of your shows. Um, bit of a fan. Thanks for your work. Um, I have a question, I guess, if you want to comment, if you know anything about, um, I guess, Australia's role in all of this uh, war stuff um, that's happening in Europe. Do you understand my question? I, I do understand. I, I don't have any comment though because I just I haven't followed it. But um, okay. I do think the fact that Australia, you know, has been so meek in winning the freedom of Julian Assange, I think that says to it that 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 speaks to how it's been captured by you know the U.S. led system. And the same way that you know Canada, where I'm from, also completely just totally subservient to the U.S. I mean, everybody is. So I don't see Australia as any different. Although I know your current prime minister has said some stuff in the past, right? That's a little bit pro-peace, kind of, right? Am, am I wrong about that? Um, he has said, I don't know about war or peace, but he has said some things about uh, Julian Assange yes. before he got elected, and he's been... Shy of making public comments since he got elected. Yes, of um, course, of course, of course. I mean, this is the problem. It's like if if you become a, a elected official in the NATO world in the, in the Western world, you're not just accountable to your own country. You're also you also have to live under the U.S. <laughs> and if you dissent, you know, if you show independence, you, you're going to pay a cost personally. Like, you know, um, like we know, for example, from the case of Jose Bustani, who's the former head of the OPCW the the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons 
He tried to stop the Iraq war by bringing Iraq into the Chemical Weapons Convention, which would have subjected Iraq to inspections that would have shown that the Bush administration's claims were a lie. So what did he get in response to that? John Bolton came to him and said, you have to leave or we're going to pull the funding to the OPCW. And also, we know where your kids live. Okay, so that happens. Um, that Whether that threat is, threat is made explicit or not, people in power understand the consequences of acting independently. And that well, keeps everybody in mind. You've got the whole history here of how um, former uh, Prime Minister Whitlam got sacked in, I think it was the 80s or something. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, which kind of makes people wonder if that set a precedent or like makes politicians more wary ever since that happened. Um, I 100% think it did. Have. I 100% think it did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's that's part of the aim of these of these intimidation. Things. It's to set a precedent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mouse. Thank you for the call. Thank you. And George. George, are you there? Going once for George, going twice. All right. Well, we will wrap it there then. Thank you to everybody who called in today and who listened. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. Have a great rest 